Well, ethics is about action. And so it's not just about a way of thinking about problems. It's not just a philosophy of life. It is also about how do we act in the world. And every action we take in the world is a response to some kind of stimulus. And I'm hoping I'm not in the way of it. Okay, I'm not. Something happens. Okay. There. Otherwise, I'm your stimulus, right? (laughs) So there's something that happens in the world. This fancy scientific word for that is a stimulus, something. And it goes into our brains and out comes an action. So what happens in between there? Our state of mind influences what we do. That's pretty obvious. And if our state of mind is such that we're looking at people as objects, or if our state of mind is looking at people as objects of worth and respect, we're going to make different choices. Either way, somewhere internally, something is happening to turn that stimulus into that action that we take. And we have choices. There are often multiple actions that we might choose. So the question is, how do we ground our choices? And I worded that very specifically, how do we ground our choices? Because this is about how we actually work as human beings. You know, here is sort of the schematic. Oops, next one. (laughs) Next one. There. Nope, we're a little behind. (laughs) There we go. This is the schematic about ethical choices. Something happens... We have a state of mind, and we make choices about how we're going to act. And so what choice do we make? And it's actually not just that we as a smiley human being are there, but there's a brain in there, and it has certain limitations. And that's where we start to get into why the science of the brain, why neuroscience is so important for us to understand ethics. Our brain is involved in all ethical decision-making with all its limits and all its capabilities and what it's adapted to do as human beings evolved. Using some of the mechanisms that we inherit from our ancestors and not just our human ancestors or our proto-human ancestors, but other mammals and even back further to reptiles. Okay, several key things we know about the brain. And let's move forward to the brain. Uh Uh-oh, we have a different one here. You can see, oh, back. (laughs) Okay. Um, Some of the key things that we know about the brain that are helpful in thinking about ethics. And I'm going to do a quick summary. There are whole books written about most of these. Um, When I talk about mind and brain, sometimes I'm going to use them interchangeably. They really are two... Um, different concepts, but they're so interrelated, we sometimes use one for the other. Um, I think it's helpful to think of the mind as the processes that use the brain to function. That is, that um, the brain uses processes in order to do its work, and that's the mind. And those processes use the brain. So the brain is using the mind, and the mind is using the brain. That's why they're so interconnected. Uh, Mind and brain are dependent on each other. 
Um, the mind is simply, when I talk about mind, the flow of energy and information, like the software, and the brain is the hardware. So just as we say computer when we mean both, mind and brain often get confused. And what is our actual brain is also somewhat difficult to define, it turns out. Uh, many of us think it's just this thing here, which is just a half of it anyway and doesn't even include all the parts we usually include. Um, but certainly we have some colloquial uses of the word in terms of talking about being brainy, meaning just being intelligent. And there are some scientists who think we should include the whole nervous system of the body in the brain so that your fingertips and the nerves there are also part of your brain. So it's not totally easy to define. Um, what happens to us, um, oh, okay. Um, we have neurons, which we think of as the brain cell, throughout our body. And so that's um, really one of the important things to understand about the brain. It's not. The neurons that the brain uses are not, and the mind uses are not just in the head. Um, also, the brains change. Now, when I grew up, which I like to think wasn't so long ago, but it was, um, we were taught that you had a certain number of brain cells when you hit about 25, and that was it. Turns out that's not true. That is not true. You continue getting brain cells all through your life. It's a really revolutionary. Um, discovery and um, exciting because part of what that means is your brain can change and you with your mind can change your brain. We are not given a certain number of neurons and that's it. Um, so what happens to us including what we choose, so all of our experience including the chosen experiences change the brain. Even you listening to this address changes your brain. That's called plasticity in the scientific terms. And all experience shapes the brain. And we know this um, from a number of experiments. Some of the most interesting are ones that show, for instance, if children have musical experience very early, there are parts of their brain that are larger than children who didn't have early musical experience. I mean, physically larger parts. One of my favorite studies is the study of New York cab drivers, where the part of the brain that figures out location in space is huge. <laughs> what you do in your experience changes your brain. Our brains develop over time. Um, infants don't have a fully functioning neocortex, that advanced part of the brain that's up in front. And they have very little left brain function during the first two years of life. You can't expect a two-year-old to be reasonable because they don't have the equipment yet. <laughs> They're developing it, which is why they begin to test and say no. <laughs> but the part of the brain that assesses risk, it turns out, is not fully developed until on average age 22 to 25. Those of you who know teenagers, <laughs> this explains an awful lot that the part of the brain that really knows how to assess risk isn't there on the average till age 22 or 25, isn't fully there. So those are some really interesting little tidbits about the brain that help, I think, in our ethical thinking. And it is true that all adult brains are deteriorating. Sorry to say that. Um, 
But it's not that we're losing neurons. We replace neurons all of our life. They used to think we lost neurons because the volume goes down, but that's because as we age, the connections disappear. And the, um, what you might call insulation on the neurons that speeds up the processes gets less. So there's a slower processing in age. And how fast that comes on for you depends on how lucky you were genetically and how well you took care of yourself during your lifetime. Um, another one that I think is, is brilliant, fits in with ethical culture, and is important. Our brains are essentially social. They're not individual. Our brains develop in relationships, not by ourselves. We can do some things by ourselves and have a relationship with ourselves that helps develop our brain and change it, but primarily the changes in our brain happen in our lifetime through interaction. And we can see that the strongest with the parent-child bonding in the first year, that the, that the um, effectiveness of that parenting in the first year of life has lifetime consequences on brain structure as well as function. Um, Another interesting finding that many of you have probably read about is the discovery of mirror neurons in the brain. And these are some neurons whose sole function is to reflect what is happening with another person. This is part of why we are social in our brains. Um, So that if I see someone with a sad face, part of me actually does feel sad. There are neurons in my brain that bring on sadness. We reflect what others are feeling, or at least what we think they are feeling, what we perceive them to be feeling. And there's a whole other topic there about people whose brains are less effective at understanding their mirror neurons. And there's a whole bunch of ethical issues involved with that. But for most of us, we have mirror neurons and probably even those people who don't function as well with them, they have them, they're just not able to function. And so some of the newer research is on how do we get that to be able to function. So what do we know, in terms of what we know about the brain and ethics, one of the interesting questions is, um, what does it take to lie? Um, we're a little bit ahead here, Amanda. <laughs> we're, just, we're just back at the schematic with the brain in the middle again. So back, 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 (laughs) one more, there, okay. Um, What do we know about the brain and lying, for instance? Lying is one of those ethical sins. You know, when they compare brains of people while they are telling the truth, saying something neutral, or telling what they know to be a lie, different things happen in the brain. And essentially, there are different parts of the brain used when you tell a lie that aren't used when you're telling the truth. In other words, it's harder for your brain to lie than to tell the truth. It takes more effort. Why does it take more complex processing? Um, Because you have to inhibit that default action, which is to to tell the truth. So it's interesting that telling the truth is the default action of our brains. Lying takes work. And part of the way we know that is that other animals that don't have some of the higher level structures in the brain that are involved in lying are less good at lying. The less they have those structures, the less good they are at lying. Worms don't lie. Dogs, mm, occasionally. (laughs) 
they usually give themselves away with a guilty look. Okay, so now we're back on the two brains. And I just want to point out to here, if you can see this purple section in that other one there, or the reddish section in the second one, that's the part I'm going to talk a lot about in the rest of what I'm talking about. It's, part, it's the limbic system, and it's the part of the brain that we inherit and share um, with our reptilian ancestors. It's designed to do very simple things in our brain, and it's the one that gets triggered when we get triggered. And if you look at the next picture, if you can see the little red dots in the middle as this brain turns, there they are. That's what's called the amygdala. We usually refer to it as if it's just one structure, but there's actually two of them in the brain. They're called the amygdala. It's some word that means almond, and it's because they look a little bit like almonds. Um, and it's customary to talk about the amygdala as if it's one. There's actually different functions with the two. The one in the right brain, for instance, will recognize scary faces, and the one on the left brain will understand more complex ideas like a picture of a gun. And the job of the amygdala is to decide whether we are in danger or not. And so when something happens, this is sort of a blow-up of what we talked about before. And there's a stimulus, a, a part of the brain called the thalamus gets the message. And it sends signals to two places, the amygdala and the cortex. And the cortex you can think of as the smart part of the brain, the part that can think. The amygdala reacts. And the amygdala, because it's part of the reptilian brain and closer to the thalamus, gets the signals first. And this is helpful for survival. So if we look at the amygdala here, um, the classic situation described with this is you're walking in the woods and out of the corner of your eye you see something. Your uh, thalamus sees something, sends signals both places. The amygdala reacts and says, oh, snake, and you jump. And that's what the amygdala's job is, is to say, something dangerous, do something. You haven't even become conscious at that time of the danger. Well, then the cortex gets involved. Is it really a snake or isn't it? And one function of the cortex, when it knows that the situation isn't really dangerous, let's say in this case it you know, it gets a better focused image of that, has more data to look at to see, and says, oh, that's just a piece of rope. And so it knows that the situation isn't dangerous. So the way the cortex works is it actually sends hormones to bathe the amygdala and basically say, calm down. Stop all this um, scary functioning that says snake and let's run. And just calm down. On the other hand, it's also the job of the amygdala, if it's really scared, to turn off the neocortex. The amygdala can also send hormones that turn off the neocortex and stop you from thinking. And this is why sometimes we do things that we didn't think we wanted to do. The cortex draws on memory banks called the hippocampus, that's I'm simplifying here, um, to, and that's where it checks against the data bank to see if it really is a snake or not. That's what the cortex was doing while the amygdala had you jumping. And when it says there's a piece of rope, it calms down the amygdala. 
The hippocampus is there to store memories, and both the cortex and amygdala are connected to it and can access it. Um, the job of the, cort- of the cortex is to organize memory. And one of the interesting pieces about the brain in more recent years is the understanding that the br- memory is not something that's stored like pieces of paper in a vault. Every time you bring up a memory, you change it. So every time the neocortex accesses memory to organize it, it changes the structure of that memory as it's stored in the brain. The amygdala stores emotional reactions and memories. And sometimes if the neocortex was turned off during the event because there was real terrible fear, the neocortex doesn't have access to those memories yet. And this, they think, may be the mechanism by which PTSD works, that there are those memories and the the amygdala being the um, reptilian part of the brain doesn't know time It doesn't know when it hears a car backfire that someone's not back in Iraq. Um, And so the memory comes back with the full force of the emotion that it had before. And the other thing about the amygdala to know, and we're forward a little bit here, I think, is that the amygdala is biased toward the negative. It has about four times as many neurons involved with experiencing negative experiences positive. So our brains are designed to see the world negatively. And this makes sense if you think about it. We are descendants of people whose amygdalas saved us. And those amygdalas that didn't work effectively, uh, they didn't have grandchildren, so we're not theirs. (laughs) So the way it works is like this. If you see a lion behind a bush and you react quickly, you're likely to survive. That's what the amygdala's job is. Think you see a lion, either run, or if you have a weapon, attack. If you are very likely to make a mistake and see, not see a lion, you're not going to have grandchildren. If you make an error the other way and think you see a lion when you don't, there's not much cost to that, is there? There is some. There's adrenaline and too many scares in your lifetime, add stress chemicals to your system and wear you down. So living in fear all the time is not the goal. But the people who were able to make mistakes more toward the negative were more likely to survive. And that's partly why we tend to see things more negatively than we would really wish we did. So what this means for ethics, among other things, is that when there is a perception of threat, when there is a fear in the world, it's going to be harder to make ethical decisions. The amygdala is going to have us running away or doing something very quickly. Um, notice, by the way, that the amygdala can often act without any consciousness of the cortex as well. Okay. And now we're at one with just the amygdala on top. Um, There. I'm going to simplify this and just talk about the amygdala for a minute and how this works. Um, The amygdala sends signals via electricity and chemicals called hormones to the rest of the body when it's in fear. How does it get you to jump? before your brain tell you know the upper part of your brain tells you to jump this is how it works it sends those signals out immediately to your muscles but especially to your gut and to your heart 
one of the other fascinating new discuss, discoveries is that you have this huge bunch of neurons in your gut. Some scientists are calling it your second brain. You know, when you get that sinking feeling in your gut, you actually may be sensing something with the neurons there. And the neurons in your gut may be, um, we're thinking now, the scientists are thinking that they actually send signals up to the amygdala about something being scary. There's also a bunch of neurons around the heart. And so let's go back to fear and how this works. So here's the amygdala and how it functions in fear. And that's the next slide. The amygdala thinks there's fear there. And thinks is a, not the right word, but um, it sends electrical and chemical communications. There's one nerve called the vagus nerve that extends from the brain and has connections to heart and gut. And that's what the amygdala uses to get signals out quickly. And why is that important? Because one of the first things you're going to try and do most of the time when you are in fear is fight or flee. You're going to want to either fight or get out of there. Those are the natural reactions to fear when your neocortex isn't fully engaged. And it requires, if you're going to do either of these, for your heart to speed up because you've got to run or attack. And it requires your gut to shut down because if you just had a heavy meal, spending energy digesting it is not a good idea. That's why you get stomach upsets after you're scared. Okay, so um, you might feel your heart pounding as a result of a stimulus. That's likely to be fear, even if you don't experience it, um, obviously, as fear. Or some people, I, I have one friend who hates public speaking, and every time he has to speak publicly, he sits in the chair and bounces his feet. Well, what a wonderful way for his body to simulate running away. <laughs> now, we're designed as mammals, um, so the next thing we do, if we can't fight or flight, or if our amygdala thinks it's not a good idea, is we freeze. And this is what other animals do as well. Um, it makes a rough assessment, and we freeze either so the predator doesn't notice us or so that we die without too much pain. Um, deep shame, by the way, is something that is connected with the freeze reflex, and it's one of the reasons that shaming people never works to get them to act the way you want them to act, because shame will throw people into freeze where they are unable to act. Okay, so the third choice, and these are actually, these three things are, are channels in the vagus nerve. There's a channel for fight or flight, there's a channel for freeze, and in freeze your heart slows down, your gut gives up. Um, social engagement is the third choice of the vagus nerve, and that requires certain things to happen too. Um, it, it requires you to get your heart going enough that you can look at a person, um, it requires being able to talk. And so that is a third reaction to fear, but it is one that tends to happen only if there is enough neocortex operating to be able to do that. So essentially, to get to social engagement, your amygdala has to calm down. Now I'm going to tell you here a story about myself. About three years ago, right after I'd been immersing myself in this stuff, 
um, in a class for a while, I got very sick. I couldn't eat from the pain for two and a half weeks. I was near starvation. The medical people saw something in an ultrasound in my gallbladder, and they thought it was gallbladder cancer. I'll tell you right now that it wasn't, but relieve that scare, because I know about those mirror neurons. Um, but um, I did have a very heavily scarred gallbladder. Gallbladder. And so while I was in the stage of wondering what was, still going, what was going on and wondering if I had cancer, I had to go get an MRI. And I'd never had one before, but I never had an issue with claustrophobia. So they put me in the machine. I didn't take any special meds because I never had a problem before with claustrophobia. And the person who strapped me in very tightly so I couldn't move said, you're not going all the way inside the machine. And so then there was a loud noise. I closed my eyes. Huge, awful loud noise. I can still remember it. And it stopped. And the noise stopped, so I opened my eyes, and the metal was here. <laughs> I was technically outside the machine, but it was like right here. And I freaked. I totally freaked. Now, enough of my neocortex was operating, and I had enough experience with how to handle a freak that some tiny part of my neocortex was observing what happened. And the first thing it observed was that my legs were twitching. I wanted to run away. I wanted to get out of there. And they couldn't. They couldn't move against the straps. And so the next thing I noticed was that my heart was slowing down. And my body was relaxing. And my breathing was getting very slow. And some part of my cortex said, uh-oh, <laughs> this is freeze. You're letting yourself die. And I actually had enough of my neocortex left to say, okay, amygdala, I want you to be scared about something else here. I want you to be scared about that we're going to die if we don't get out of here. But I had so little neocortex left operating that it took me, I have no idea how long, it was like the amygdala doesn't have time, it took me a while to figure out what do I do? I can't even talk. And finally I could get out one word, out. And when the tech responded with something, I said it again and again. And then finally she said, do you want out? And I still could only say, out. <laughs> I mean, my amygdala really freaked. And I got this wonderful example of exactly how it worked and how I could be in touch with it. And after I got out, my husband, who's here, can tell you, I couldn't even look him in the face for about 10 minutes because I wasn't able to do social engagement. It was too painful to look at a person in the face. It was only after I got home that I got some empathy for that poor tech who had to figure out how to deal with the freakout and respond to it. So while we are in the fight, flight, and freeze stage, experiments have shown that we do not see other people as human beings. That has a big implication for ethics. We don't recognize faces as human beings in the same way we do when we are not in that area. That means it's really bodily difficult to attribute worth when we're in fear. When we are in the grip of fear and we're in the takeover of the amygdala, we often do things we don't want to do. We hit, we yell, we scream, we're verbally aggressive. 
or we run away, we go in the bathroom and lock the door, <laughs> or we freeze, we sit like we're, um, what did somebody say when they were describing a reaction to a scary situation? She said, I was rooted to my seat, it's like I was screwed onto the seat, I couldn't even move. Or you feel like you want to drop through the floor, that's, free. that's um, freeze. And in some way, that's what we're supposed to do when the fear is real. The problem is that most of the time, there are no lions in the room. <laughs> and that these ways of reacting are not helpful. We want to get to social engagement. So a high priority in ethics is to figure out how do we get here more often and more quickly. Well, we could avoid all fearful situations, right? <laughs> Probably not. Um, that's actually more like either flight or freeze anyway. Um, one inoculation that helped with my own panic and fear was that I had just been studying mindfulness training and learning to focus my mind and learning to be mindful even when there's fear helps us not to move as quickly into those other reactions but to keep some control in the neocortex and make the decisions that we wish later we would make. So I focus mostly on fear today. I'm just going to quickly go over and just mention there are other things in the brain that are really important to ethics. Um, fear is one. Um, Jack Pengsepp is someone who has studied the chemistry of emotion. And these are the emotional systems that he has discovered so far. And we share them with other animals. A second one is sadness and grief as a whole separate system of what chemicals and pathways are taken. Um, most lower animals don't have it, but we now know that some of those with higher, you know, more developed neocortexes do, like whales and um, many of the primates. Um, some of us have seen it in dogs. Dogs actually have a fairly well-developed some parts of their neocortex. Um, rage, which often gets triggered by fear first, but that's when you get into that blind anger, which is a kind of aggression, and therefore part of the flight reflex, fight reflex. Um, learning has its own pathway. Um, it's a whole emotional pathway in, in his scheme. It has certain chemicals that douse the brain to make it more plastic and to make it more changeable, because what learning is is you're changing the brain. Um, seeking is another pathway that he's identified, and that's where we, tr on our quests to do something. Um, lust is another one, and certainly a lot of ethics is around how do we deal with lust in life. Lust also includes romantic love, so it's not a total negative in ethics. Um, then there's care, which is the nurturing kind of love, which is a part of our built-in brain system. And finally, play, which I was really glad to find out is a part of what we're supposed to be as human beings. Um, there's also the whole interesting um, ethical implications of right and left brain, um, and the idea that the right brain um, simplistically is in charge of emotional affect, and the left brain tends to make up stories as to why we're doing things, some of which are true. Um, <laughs> you know, they've done research where they, with split brain patients, where they only show a word to the right half of the brain that says walk, and then they ask the left-hand side of the brain why it walked, because it didn't see the card that said walk. And the left-hand side of the brain said, I wanted a Coke. 
How often do we think we know what we were doing when there was some other message that was actually the motivation? Okay, I want to just say a little bit about mindfulness here at the very end. Um, Dan Siegel's one of my favorite writers on the brain, um, in part, I think, because he's one who absolutely insists on the social nature and the relational nature of brains. He talks about mindfulness as paying attention in the present moment on purpose without grasping onto judgments. A little bit what I told you as directions this morning of just say yes and just pay attention. You know, don't worry about what it means, just what happens. Um, the particular technique that I used when, when I was in the MRI was a mindfulness technique. Um, Dan Siegel is the inventor of it. It's sometimes abbreviated COAL, or I sometimes say COAT. Um, it, first step is curiosity. Gee, what's going on here? Oh, my leg muscles are twitching. That's interesting. Second is being open to what happens. And I also call this objective observation. Um, and accepting that it is, instead of in that moment of fear, getting all wrapped up into it ought to be different. <laughs> now, it maybe ought to be different, <laughs> but it doesn't help when you're in the grip of fear to get into that. That tends to increase the fear cycle. And finally, either love or tenderness, at least, for yourself. And for me, in that moment in the MRI, it was, I just, I really want to survive. <laughs> I'm worth it. I want to get out of here. So that's a quick way that I was able to access something fairly complicated in a moment of crisis. Um, I'm just going to leave the rest of the slides and just leave it there. So there's a lot to say about the brain. And I've just touched the surface. I think that the fear reflex part of the brain science is one of the most important ones for us to understand in ethical behavior. When we judge other people for reacting in ways that we don't like, often if we really look at it, we can see, oh, that was their fear reflex acting. And now what do we do or what can I impact to bring out their best rather than increasing that and certainly responding back with fighting, responding back with shaming, doesn't work. So that's one of the challenges of what it might mean to bring out our best in the light of some of that research. So watch yourself, and when you can learn to catch your fear reflex early, you're more likely to get your neocortex sending all that bath down to the amygdala saying, calm down, calm down. And you're more likely to be making ethical decisions. <laughs>